Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hello everyone and welcome to Bouncing Back, the personal resilience science insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I am your host, Joanna. Let's get started. Hi guys and welcome back to Bouncing Back, our personal resilience podcast. I'm your host Joanna and today we're going to be talking about something that I'm super excited to talk about because I feel like we just don't have enough conversations surrounding this. So I'll be joined by Georgie Cameron to talk about the healing and self-care post-trauma. So we're going to dive right into this topic but before that um, I'd love to introduce Georgie. So she is a strength-based educational and development psychologist who loves to help people of all ages, including helping people find solutions to life challenges. Hi, Georgie. How are you today? Hi, Joanna. I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for being here with us. Great. No, it's a pleasure to be. I'm excited about the conversation we're having today. Yeah, and we're excited to have you here. Um, Before we get started, would you like to just introduce a bit more about yourself and uh, what it is you do? Yeah, so I guess as as you said, I'm an educational and developmental psychologist, which I suppose is um, a little bit different to some, you know, a clinical or a counselling, and that we have a very much a framework of development and lifespan development and understanding people within a system. Um, and often our experience is working in schools and with younger younger people, children and adolescents, and that's been predominantly my experience working in schools. Um, uh, as a psychologist, um, but also as a trainer uh, in positive education and kind of whole school um, approaches. Uh, and also, I guess there's another part, of, a big part of what I do is research as well. So I'm a practitioner as well as a researcher and the area of research I'm most interested in at the moment is trauma-informed practices. So this is why it's a really good um, opportunity to have a chat, I guess, about where practice and research kind of aligns for me anyway. Yeah, for sure. And could you tell us a bit more about what strength-based educational and development psychology is? So I I suppose strength-based, I guess it's just kind of combining two things in that that Mm. educational psychology, as I said, is is one kind of area and I I like to kind of describe myself as strength-based because that's how I practice. I start with the people's strengths and find out about what who they are, what they value, what's important to them, what makes life meaningful for them, and then we then we focus on the problem. So even when I'm working with a client in session, I'll say, look, I know that you know you've probably come here to see me for problems, but I want to get to know you first outside the problem because sometimes problems can over overwhelm and uh, I guess diminish the person and who they are. So I really start from strengths and and then build from there. And I try and do that in organisations as well as in in individuals. Yeah, amazing. And what made you want to get into this line of work? I think I've just kind of fallen into it, you know, like I've, um, 
I never kind of set out to be strength-based and even an educational psychologist, even a psychologist I kind of fell into. I really like working with people. And then I, as, as I was working as a psychologist and um, training to be a psychologist, I kind of came across strength-based approaches um, and, you know, and how people were, you know, when you talk in a clinical set, setting and you say, you know, how are you approaching this client? And some people use that terminology and I thought that's interesting. And then, and it's interesting because it also coincided with a time where psychology was shifting a lot as well. So, um, and around, so when I was training around that time, positive psychology was just starting to really take off. So it kind of coincided, my training time and when, as I was developing into a psychologist, positive psychology was developing as well. So I kind of caught, caught the bug of that and got really interested in positive psychology and um, positive psychology is this, I guess this, um, a swing that happened in around 2000 that that they psychologists that uh, Martin Seligman was the head of the APA at the time which is the American Psychological Association and he kind of you know put out there that we really need to start focusing on the positive aspects of life as as psychologists and we we're missing people's character strengths we're missing all of these things that because we're kind of getting kind of stuck in the diagnoses and and it kind of spurned this whole uh, whole huge raft of research around you know character strengths, around mindfulness, around gratitude, around you know things that are important in people's lives. And so I think I kind of caught. I ended up working at Geelong Grammar School, which is um, a kind of leader in the, in the in positive education. It was one of the first schools to in the world to implement positive education. And Martin Seligman came and stayed there and. So it was it was a great um, you know environment to be part of and to learn um, how to implement something across a whole culture. So yeah, that's how I kind of got into it. Yeah, that's such an amazing journey, and I'd love to like get to know you a bit more. So we're gonna go into our section we like to call "Have you met Georgie?" So um, I'll just fun. ask. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is a bit fun. Um, so I'll just say a couple of different topics and you can just say the first thing that pops into your mind when I say these words. So my first one for you is books. Books. I read a lot, but I, I feel like, I'm, and I'm not sure if I'm product of our time at the moment, but I am a perennial dip, dipper of different books. I always have about, yeah. you know, 20 on the go at any given time. <laughs> yeah. And I read a lot for purpose. So okay. I tend to read a lot of therapy books so if I'm seeing clients I'll kind of I might get stuck and think well because I'm an quite an integrative therapist as well I use lots of different approaches and I might be have might be thinking what what else could I do here that might might be beneficial or and so then I'll I'll end up you know going on kindle and buying too many books (laughs) and so I've got, got lots of books um lots of unfinished books but I tend to read when I what I need from a book um so that's kind of what what kind of comes up for books when you say books yeah awesome I love that I'm like very similar in that aspect I feel like I've always got like not 20 but probably like <laughs> five books that I like read a little bit of them here and there and I'm just trying to like get through all of them because I'm just so keen to like read every single one of them well, everything's so interesting. It's hard to, yeah. yeah. And there's there's always so much to learn, and yeah. So like, and get in different days, you you want to learn different things. 
Yeah, for sure. No, I'm 100% the exact same way. Um, my next one for you is movies. Do you have a favorite movie? Oh, I'm a, I'm a mum of three um, kids and my partner and I don't get a lot of time to sit and watch movies. <laughs> so yeah. we tend to do Netflix series instead So we because an hour is about as much as we can do at night. Um, so we tend to watch a lot of Netflix series like we're, what are we watching at the moment? Watching Heels, um, Yellowstone, yeah, really kind of drama-filled ones, I have to say. Um, but also we also like you know, comedies and things. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, my next one for you is podcasts. Oh, I love podcasts, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just, um, I'm, I'm, I could... I could eat them up. I love. I just love listening to conversations and love, um, particularly uh, psychologists. There's some shrink wrap, shrink wrap radio. Okay, um, has a great one that I've always really enjoyed listening to. Um, it's not just psychologists; it's like lots of therapists, and I really like that one. And I just really like conversation. I suppose as as a something to listen on and learn from. Yeah, has this been something new you've gotten into, or has podcast just been something you've been into for a while now well it actually came about when I had to because um where I live I had to travel when I was working at Geelong Grammar um I, I wasn't living close to there and I kind of was thinking about how to make use of the drive and podcast was kind of just coming in then and and I started going oh okay these are free <laughs> I could listen to them and and oh wow it's amazing how much you can learn and um it was just I always just found it a great way of and for my line of work as well, being in research and training and wanting to find out, I guess, current thinking and topics, it's always been a really, yeah, it's really appealed. Yeah, for sure. Um, and my next one for you is famous role model. Now, when I ask people these questions, sometimes they're like, oh, famous role model, I can't pick one. So you can pick like anyone from your life even that's been an inspiration to you. Really? <laughs> I think probably my grandmother. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I know that's just probably really cheesy. No. But I think, um, yeah, I think, I think she used to tell a lot of stories and was a really great kind of historian in that way and helped me understand a lot about, I guess, World War Two and the impact it had um, on Australia at the time, on her life, um, on my family's life generally. So, I think she's always been someone that I've I looked up to. She's passed away a long time ago now, but yeah, just uh, someone that you know really led with her heart and yeah. That's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with us. That's okay. <laughs> um, and lastly, I'd like to ask if there's like a course you've completed that's been influential to you. Probably my certificate. What's it called? Postgraduate certificate of narrative therapy. Yeah. yeah. So I'll probably be I'll probably be even referencing some of that today. I think it's really kind of got into a little bit of my into as I said, I'm an integrative therapist. I use lots of different therapies, but narrative therapy in particular is something that's really resonated with me and I, I always kind of come back to it in some way. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you don't mind like explaining to us what that type of therapy is. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So it's um started by Michael White and David Epstein and they and a, and a bunch of other people but I guess they were the main leaders in it and it was in the 80s and early 90s though kind of came from the family therapy field 
and they're uh, Michael White's an Australian and um, David Epson, I think he's American. Anyway, they 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 collaborated uh, on a bunch of different books uh, that they were both clinicians and they were working in different spaces with families and they both agreed on, I guess, a, a, a particular approach to working with families, which understands to which understands the problem. They call it the problem is the problem. Um, so not trying to make the per, like the person the problem. So it's specifically non-blaming. So it really, okay. instead of, you know, because I think clinical language can be really blaming sometimes. You know, you have depression, you are depression, you are, you know, the way in which we frame things can mean that people kind of, you know, blame themselves for their issues and often their issues are contextually based. So the, um, the famous example that uh, Michael White used and was this one of, and I guess what's kind of, it's quite familiar to um, a lot of the narrative therapy uh, community would be the one of encopresis. So I'm not sure if you've ever heard of encopresis, but that's no. uh, when children have soiling issues. So they, they, you know, have problems with going to the toilet and, and that kind of thing. And, and it can be a really hard thing for a family because as you can imagine, you're cleaning up a lot and you're, and there's a lot of shame attached to it for the child and they feel a lot of blame and they, and there's a lot of frustration within the family. So, um, instead of, you know, focusing on and saying to the child, you know, why are you doing this? What's happening? You know, what, what, you know, rewarding it or not, or not it, sorry, the child, um, (laughs) rewarding them, um, or punishing them or that kind of thing. Not that, not that psychologists often punish, but I guess it was a different approach in understand, helping the child understand the problems, not them, because children yeah. often internalize problems. So they, because they are egocentric and in a, in a, in a way that that's just their development when they're, when they're young, they kind of, if something's going wrong, they think it's their fault. Um, so they, so in this way, so with Encapricis, Michael White and uh, David Epson, they talked about they called it sneaky poo and so the child understood it as sneaky poo and oh when sneaky poo around and how do we know when sneaky poo is coming instead of kind of putting it in clinical language that that the the child maybe doesn't relate to or doesn't really understand or internalizes as the the issue so it's really um non-blaming and then you find then the aim of it is to find alternative stories um because as i said before the the problem story can kind of overtake a whole family and all they think about is that problem when it, and it's kind of hiding away hiding all the great things about them all the strengths and all the the beautiful stories that about them as a family and as a as, as that individual that has that problem yeah and is this like related to like the positive sort of therapeutic approaches you were talking about before yeah it's very much aligned to a positive approach because you are kind of trying to carve out i guess yeah positive stories in in the sense of oh I don't like to use positive and negative because I kind of feel like that sometimes you know people kind of view that as like one's better than the other um but I guess it's trying to find stories of meaning stories of hope stories of uh of their values of what's important to them of and then and then what we do is we call it thickening the story. So you try and get more of that story um, so that it strengthens that identity, it strengthens themselves to then confront the problem. 
Yeah, beautiful. And with these types of approaches, do like all the therapeutic approaches you work with, are they like based on like the positive sort of, you know, approach? Yeah, pretty much. Like I kind of work within a frame of like, let's, let's look at the strengths and let's look at building strengths in order to, to support them to have enough strength to then tackle the problem. Yeah. Uh, because I think it, it also builds that creative sense. So when you, because when you're in, when you're in the problem, our emotions are really, they they become really tunnel vision. They become really rigid. I mean, our thinking becomes really rigid. We can't see out of it. So sometimes you do need to build up, and then your creative juices kind of get flowing because you kind of realize like there's more opportunity, there's more hope, there's more, there's more things that can happen. So that's why I think from a scientific point of view, it's also a really good approach. Yeah, lovely. Well, I'd love to get into our interview questions and we can unpack more of like the therapeutic approaches you use as well. But let's start off with talking about resilience. Um, I'd love to ask you why you think it's important in our lives. Look, I'm, I've always been really interested in resilience from, as I said, I've always come up from it from a strength base. So resilience is kind of bread and butter of, of yeah. strength-based approaches. I think why resilience has interested me is from both a research and a practitioner point of view. So when I first started working in schools, resilience was actually a really big buzz term at the time. Um, okay. Had lots of resilience programs and, and that kind of thing. It's kind of schools are, schools and education goes through different waves and at the moment it seems much more around self-regulation, but it's kind of doing the same thing, but they call it different things. Um, but Resilience was a really big buzzword and one of the things that I noticed when I was working as a school psychologist was the way in which people talked about resilience didn't kind of sit right for me. They'd say um, this child's, you know, uh, getting really emotional in class. They're just not resilient enough. Um, they're just, they're not, you know, do it, they're not doing resilience right, you know, kind of thing. Not that they said they're not doing resilience right, but that was the implication that they, that that. They haven't got enough resilience. They haven't. They they need more. You know, we need to kind of give them resilience somehow. Give them more skills or strengths or that kind of thing to deal with things. And whilst I agree to some extent that you you can definitely change resilience and you can increase resilience and you can build strengths and stuff. I think one of the things that sometimes misses is is understanding the whole context. That resilience doesn't happen out of context. Uh, that when we look back at the research that started resilience which was you know emmy werner's research and others yeah. they they were really looking at the longitudinal data and and looking at following that this um this big study in Kauai, i think that's how you pronounce it. it's like a hawaiian island yeah and they looked at all the risk fat they looked at following these kids from you know young age to older age and they looked at kids who had lots of risk factors and some of them had, you know, family dysfunction and some of them had, you know, abusive, you know, environments that they were living in or had, you know, were experiencing significant poverty. And what they found when they followed them over time was that two-thirds of them went on to have significant issues. So um, that might be mental health problems, might be like, you know, life-functioning problems, that kind of thing. But what, what they were interested in and what I kind of commend them as researchers for noticing was that, you know, one third of them didn't have that. They they went on to have, despite all these major risk factors, they went on to have, you know, well, they were well-functioning at, at, 
18, 19 years old, they were going okay, despite having about like four or five of these risk factors. And so they were really interested in in these these kids that had kind of had some significant adversity in their lives, but had been able to kind of go back into an always resilient pathway. Yeah, and think, yeah, and I think that that's I think I'm really interested in in that research because it kind of lends it when you dig into that research a bit. It's not just about the skills that they they had or them being superhumans often it's about the relationships they had you know that they were they had one person that was really special to them in their life that looked out for them that cared for them that made them feel a sense of belonging Um, so it's it's not just about the individual it's always happening in context and communities make resilience individuals make resilience families make resilience they all they're all part of it and that's kind of why when I talk about resilience with people I often favor more kind of nature type of uh, metaphors to really describe that you know resilience is we we're like plants in the sense of that you know we are all going to face adversities we're all going to have the storms of life that we can't control there is no way that we're going to and anyone can escape this life without some adversity and that I guess that's why resilience is so important but that like plants that we have this way of surviving and a way of Kind of coming back and it's not always bouncing back it's sometimes stopping and and sometimes things are happening underneath that we don't see and sometimes we crawl back and sometimes we go sideways like a plant does you know like we yeah. pop in sun somewhere else um so yeah i think I, I really favor that kind of way of thinking of resilience yeah amazing and do you think that being resilient means you're not like adverse to stresses and adversity in your life that you still despite maybe identifying with being resilient, that you still are just as affected by the challenges that come into your life. A hundred percent. Yeah. I think it's, it's not like, I think a lot of people that process it at the time probably do to do better over in the long run, you know, being able to kind of cry when you need to cry and, and feel those emotions when you need to feel those emotions. I don't believe that, that anyone's immune I guess to 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 adversity um, that we're all going to feel it in some ways, and that it it's this because of that because it's so common that we have these experiences. We all do resilience differently, so it's yeah. like falling in love. Like no person falls in love in the same way. You know, we all kind of cope in different ways, and we get through in different ways. And there's no one way. Yeah, I think that's a really great way of putting it. Um, And I feel like when we think of resilience, sometimes we think of it as this like one thing, like I'm resilient, therefore I can get through like anything that life throws at me. But I feel like everyone's got so many different life experiences and different things that have happened to them. So they'll see resilience in a different way. Yeah, for sure. I think think that's, um, I think it's really important that people understand that from the outset that that because I think this sometimes if that if it's not normalized then people can feel like what am I I'm doing resilience wrong you know mm. I'm not being resilient enough I'm not coping when I should be coping when really they're actually they're doing all the things that they need to do you know they're they're yeah. sometimes when we have experienced something really hard we we need to have 
time to process and we, we will have those symptoms of, you know, that kind of trauma symptoms, I guess, that, that sometimes happen. And I, trauma, trauma's got a, a wider definition these days in terms of what it is. It, you know, it used to kind of just be kind of thought of as a life-threatening situation, but now it's really about how when we perceive that uh, our safety is in, in major threat, and that how it can that can affect us from a you know biological, physiological, psychological, uh, spiritual way. So it's a really broad definition of of trauma. Mm. I can't remember where I was going with that. <laughs> no, that's okay. I think what you were talking about is so important because I feel like we put a lot of pressure on ourselves sometimes to be super resilient and bounce back don't mind the pun there I guess um when you know we go through something and like we have this visual of like how we should sort of recover from it and if we don't meet that then we're really hard on ourselves because I feel like there is this idealized like idea of what resilience is so I think it's important not to set like you know rigid standards for what that is yeah and I think that's where it comes down to again finding a uh, a more a thicker like understanding that there's many stories in every situation, so there's multiple stories um, that we can take from it, any situation. And and one of those stories that can happen from when you have an adversity is that I'm broken, I'm I'm not good enough, and that's one of those what we'd call like a thin description if we're talking about narrative therapy of coming to an identity conclusion, saying something about ourselves and saying this is this is who I am based on this this one event. When when a thicker description might be to understand it, uh, understand all the responses that we did. So, you know, if, maybe it's easier if I give you an example. Like, you know, for example, mornings are usually stressful for me and I'm not saying I'm going to use the stress as a as an example rather than a trauma trauma but mm. you it's still kind of meaning the same I guess thing that you know the morning's stressful and you know I've got three kids so I have to get them to school and uh, and we're always late and and I can tell a story about how I feel really hopeless as a parent and I feel really like I'm you know not good enough as a parent because I'm always kind of getting you know nagging at them and we're always running late and, and, and that kind of thing. And that's one story I can tell. But I can similarly, the same situation, I can also tell a story of like, you know, I've, we've got it down to a pretty good system now, you know. We do breakfast, get dressed, toilet, out the door, you know. And we've, yeah. I can appreciate that I actually can take my kids to school. I, I've been able to, to have that joy of being able to say goodbye to each one of them. So I can t- define things. I can appreciate it in that, in that, and I can and and saying goodbye to each one of them is important to me because I want them to always know how much they how much I care about them and to kind of hold hold that I hold them in my heart. You know, when when I say goodbye. So the same situation, but I've got two different stories that I can draw on depending on the kind of questions I ask myself. Yeah, and. Leaning more into, you know, the trauma-based side of things, what is trauma-informed self-care? So I suppose it's I'll step back and kind of maybe talk a little bit about what trauma-informed is and then I'll talk about it in relation to self-care. And you can feel free to prompt me because they're kind of two concepts that we're kind of bringing together, I guess, when in this podcast. 
and in this conversation. So trauma-informed is a whole kind of research area and practice area that kind of started again in around around 2000. Um, but, you know, probably had elements before then, but it was really this reaction to to research that was kind of showing almost the opposite of what I was talking about before. They call it adverse childhood events. So they called it, sometimes people just call them ACEs. So they'd found in the 90s that the prevalence of people, of children having these events was much higher than they thought, for one. And secondly, that they had all these impacts. So if a child had, you know, three or more or four or more of these adverse childhood events, their likelihood of, you know, having drug addiction, having mental health problems, having, you know, having criminal um, issues, having physical health issues were all significantly higher. And so this brought on, I guess, a little bit of an understanding that we have like cycles of, of trauma in the sense that you, when you, particularly when you experience it as a young child, that trauma can then be kind of almost brought on in different environments over your life course and read and read and you can be re-traumatized and so sister the trauma-informed practice was this really call out for systems and for schools and for you know prisons and for uh police officers and for all for health professionals all to kind of understand that to be trauma-informed is to under to not try and re-traumatize so that to really avoid re-traumatizing and what I mean by that is you know it's probably easiest for me to give a school example um, because they're the people I've known the most (laughs) or seen the most so you've got a kid that comes in and you know they're experiencing abuse at home and maybe you're not 100% aware of that and that's also part of being trauma-informed is that you maybe start to notice that some of their symptoms or their behaviors come out in ways that you'd that you can interpret in different ways. So, for example, they're really dysregulated in class. They're really looking around all the time and they, they don't concentrate. And that's actually maybe a symptom of hypervigilance because they're always on alert. They're always in fight or flight mode because of what's happening at home. Obviously, you're not privy to that as a teacher always, but to be looking out and thinking, what does it mean when they're doing that? Potentially, it could be something to do with with home environment. And so instead of potentially re-traumatizing them by punishing them for that behavior and saying, you know, little Jimmy, you're not listening, you're not doing this, get to the, you know, go to the principal's office, I'm sick of this, um, and then them, them having a major reaction and, and escalating and that being another kind of, I guess it just kind of cementing that 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 um, trauma story for them, really, that they're not good enough, they're not right, they're not, you know, and, and it just kind of carries on from there. A trauma informed approach kind of would say to look at the understand, look look at trying to understand where that behaviour is coming from, look at trying to well, search for ways that are, are going to not re traumatise. So. And you know, going from a relationship point of view, going to Jim, little Jimmy, okay, we can see. Why don't we? Why don't you have some time in the corner to you know resettle? Um, trying to help little Jimmy to feel a lot more safer in the classroom, so that he does, so that he can kind of start to uh, bring down that hyper vigilance a little bit. So I guess it's it's really coming from a point of view of trying to recognize the signs of trauma, trying to 
realize that 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 they that there are responses to trauma and then trying to respond in empathic ways and not re-traumatize. So then if we put that to ourselves, this is where it becomes important, I think, when we think about it in terms of self-care. It's also, and it kind of links back to our conversation before, that um, when you have a traumatic experience, we need to be, it's really good to be aware of what the, what, what trauma symptoms are. And that's like probably the first, I guess the first step and it's the first step for organizations when they become trauma-informed and that they do a trauma awareness training and that kind of thing. But similarly for individuals, it can be really useful to understand what's going on in the body when we're having a, when we're having a trauma reaction because when, when our sense of safety is compromised, we will go into, you know, fight or flight mode and probably people are quite familiar with that. Um, yeah. Uh, about, you know, that, but I think sometimes it can be good talking through the 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 kind of brain physio brain side of it, and I find I do that a lot with clients um, to help them understand that their body's doing what it should be doing. It's trying to protect them at all t- at all costs. Like it's always trying to survive our bodies, and so when our amygdala, which is like the you know ancient um, subcortical structure in the middle of our brain, kind of goes off and and that's like the alarm center of the brain. Sometimes I call the smoke alarm because sometimes it does go off like a smoke alarm and and, yeah. and goes off for things that we don't necessarily need it to go off for. And you know, when you put the when the smoke alarm goes off for burnt toast and things, it, similarly, sometimes we can perceive something that is we think that we're at major risk, but we're not necessarily at rate, major risk when we kind of reality check. But so our amygdala will then set off a cascade of, of things and our amygdala is connected to our conscious our conscious um, prefrontal kind of cortex as well, which is where, we, where that internal voice is really happening. And what ha- tends to happen when we're in a traumatic environment is that all our energy gets put to fight or flight, to survival. So we, the adrenaline will pump through our bodies, we'll, blood will go to our you know, limbs so that we can you know, move really quickly. Our muscles will become really tense so we can move really quickly or we can act or we can freeze or we can, it's, everything is about survival. And because of that, some parts can go offline and that uh, conscious memory can go offline in those moments. And that means that we may not, so, we, you know, for example, in a kind of, you know, you, in a, you might have a, a near-death experience in, in the car or something like that. All you kind of, all your mind will go to is surviving, and the actual conscious memory of that, that internal voice goes can disappear. But our body, and so sorry, I'm kind of getting tied up. But so because the conscious the voice disappears, that means our conscious memory also becomes compromised. So uh, we won't put down that that memory of that. This is exactly like when we remember a traumatic event, it won't necessarily all all look like a, a cohesive narrative. It'll be in in almost like if, if you take a mirror and then you and you smash it, it's all shards of glass. You know, in terms of it will it kind of because our conscious memory has been affected um, and all our energy resources have gone to it body and our survival 
our memories are really affected. But what what's hard is that, uh, and this is where you know I really recommend books like um, The Body Keeps the Score by um, Bert Van der Kolk, which you know talks about how, but our body will remember. So our body has an implicit memory of what's happened. So if we go back to the car, then those those symptoms of fight or flight will kick in again because our body remembers. But our conscious memory, it's all kind of, you know, jagged glasses and it's not a cohesive narrative. So a lot of what therapy does is to try and find a cohesive narrative, uh, to find a, a narrative that, that makes sense for people. Yeah, for sure. And, like, what kinds of trauma can people find themselves experiencing? Oh, look, I think, as I said, it's a really broad definition. I suppose when I, um, I guess I'm conscious of I don't want to trigger people and I think that's why yeah. I think, um, you know, I'm saying this and saying different examples, you know, I just want to put that caveat in. But, um, you know, I think abuse examples, you know, when someone – when someone is in, you know, being abused in a physical way and in a mental way and a sexual way, that's an obvious, you know, trauma um, experience. Um, when they feel, and again, coming back to that safety, so you can have you can have what's called complex and simple. Well, not that simple trauma sounds wrong because trauma is always not necessarily simple, but complex trauma really refers to that trauma that perhaps happened in childhood that was cumulative over time. So maybe. You had an abusive, um, you know, parents and that, that or abusive people in your life and that continued on for a long period of time and had complex effects. And then you have, you know, an experience of trauma like, you know, 9-11 or something like that, like that you you were at the event that that was a very life-threatening and or you're a, or a natural disaster or something like that and, and felt huge, you know, a huge sense of trauma at what's going to happen to me or you had a one-off car accident or those kind of things. And both can have, you know, significant effects and both can, you know, uh, result in PTSD, but don't both also don't necessarily result in PTSD, which is also important to keep in mind. Yeah. And when we're talking about self-care, is there like a different approach that people take when they like approach different types of trauma. Um. Yeah. Look, I think it's. I think what it comes back to is emphasizing what works for you in self care. And I think the first part of the self care part would be being aware of your own symptoms. I think is, and that's why the knowledge piece is really important. So we become aware of our fight or flight, and so because. If you're not aware of that, then that's where it can kind of, it can creep up on you. It's that kind of, you know, you go to a place and you're not aware that you're feeling those, you know, you're starting to get a feel of of fight or flight and you're not aware why this is happening. And then, of course, that's going to create more anxiety for you because you're confused. When you're confused, then you get more anxious. And so learning to understand the symptoms is really important. Um, in the first kind of step of self-care. And then I think secondly, within self-care, self-care is a really interesting area because I think people kind of often focus on, you know, take a bath, um, you know, go and get your nails done, do things. And I think those are all really important and and 
good for self-care, but I think it's really about finding what's going to work for you in that moment, I think, as well. like So that's why I'm not a big fan of doing long, big self-care plans because um, that can be sometimes a popular thing to do of, um, you know, saying I'm going to, I'm going to run every day and I'm going to do this every day. Some days you're going to wake up and you're not going to want to run. Um, sometimes you're going to wake up and, you know, the best thing you can do is tune into your emotions and see what you're really asking yourself, what you really need that day to get through. Um, and then taking an experimental kind of flexible approach. Yeah. That, you know, maybe you watch a movie and it doesn't work. And so you think, okay, what, what have I learned about, this and what can I do differently or what can I what can I do now so finding always kind of remembering that there's always different options but to kind of evaluate them as you go um, and recognize that each day is going to be different yeah and I've had experiences with like self-care types of things where I'll try something and then it doesn't work and it kind of makes me feel bad because it didn't work and I'm kind of just disappointed because I tried this and I'm like oh it didn't work like why isn't it working so my next question for you is how can people like cope with that if they're trying new things to get better with their self-care but you know they're going through a series of you know things where it's just not working out for them how can they go through that I think it's I think like you said it's important to normalize that 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 the first first understanding is to know that not everything's like just because it works for you know your friend or works for someone else doesn't mean it's going to work for you at on this day today um and it's all about tuning in on what what does work for you and I think having that idea that I guess when you think of hope hope is this idea that you have lots of different there's lots of different pathways to get to a place so when they've Sorry, when they've conceptualized hope in the research and things, they talk about having lots of different pathways. So understanding that there's lots of different ways to care for yourself and and to not judge yourself because you're not you're not kind of doing it right. Um, and then I guess it kind of comes down to within that judgment side of it, I think it comes down to self compassion as well, um, which is a really important part of all of this. And it's a that self-compassion is, you know, came about, I guess, through the researcher Kristen Neff, who's really popularized the term. And it's really talking about mindfulness, like I've been really referring to, which is that, you know, consciousness of our emotions and our inner thoughts and kind of knowing where we're at. So that's one component. The second component is this idea of connecting to common humanity and understanding that we all struggle and we're all in it together. And then the third Third one is kindness, which is being kind to ourselves. And I think in the example that you give about, you know, you might, I don't think you gave a specific example, but you might try a self-care practice and let's say it is, you know, having a bath and you sit in the bath and you think, this ain't doing anything for me <laughs> and, I, and oh, I'm failing at, at self-care and, um, you know, I, nothing seems to work and kind of thinking like, would you judge like if if your friend was sitting in the bath and saying that saying uh, I just I'm not liking baths? Would you say, oh, it's not going to work? You'd probably say like, oh, well, why don't we try something else? And it's just not for you. You know that's okay. Um, so it's really applying 
that lens of how can we be kind to ourselves? How can we be kind in in even our self-care plans that we're, we're not trying to judge ourselves. We're always trying to kind of think what would a, and I think that's a good kind of question to ask ourselves at times, you know, what would a friend say to us about this? How would they, how would they react? Um, or how would you react to um, a friend? So if they were having the same struggle, what would you say? And that's a question I often put to people in therapy and, they go, oh, you know, because they, they first tell me the judgmental story. I, I didn't do my running. I said I was going to do my running and, I'm, you know, I, I've really failed at that and I'm not doing well and and everything seems terrible. And then, then I might, you know, eventually ask the question of, well, what would you say to, a, you know, a friend who didn't do their running? Um, and they usually say, well, you know, I'd say, that's okay. You just try again tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a lot more compassionate responses to other people. We often save that for others and don't give it to ourselves in the same way. Yeah, for sure. And what are some like trauma-informed self-care practices that listeners can maybe implement in their daily lives? So I think trauma, coming back to that idea of um, trauma kind of affects the body as well there's lots of different approaches that you can i think that and that's what's really important to be aware of 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 what works for you um but there's body type approaches so there's lots of and i I guess it's still growing as an area um but trauma-informed yoga or just yoga by itself um uh, doesn't necessarily have to be trauma-informed but things like mindfulness practices can help with that again grounding and um, being able to kind of connect with, with ourselves and reality um, and the present moment because the you know, the the when we are experiencing those symptoms we tend to kind of get stuck in the past or stuck in the future worrying about what well, is this always going to be or or trying to kind of make sense of the past and there's a there's a space for making sense of the past as I said before around, finding narratives and I might talk a little bit about that as a thing but mindfulness is also really a good one for that conscious awareness of of what's going on in our bodies and um, helps with that particularly the symptom of dissociation so that's a common trauma symptom where we feel dissociated from our bodies or we feel disconnected from reality and again that's to do with that conscious awareness kind of going offline so mindfulness practices yoga things like that can really help with that um so but it's not going to work for everyone as i said before and then it comes i guess another one is to understand is um you know having that cohesive narrative and the importance of narrative and one of the things i focus a lot on with trauma in in with clients is getting the story of their survival and writing down the story of their survival because as I said, the very beginning of the podcast, I guess, or the conversation was that problems can be overwhelming and we can kind of get stuck in all the effects and the effects are really important to talk about all the effect, the effect that the, the trauma, the traumatic experience has had on us, what it, what it's done to us, what, how it's changed us. It's all important, but there's also our responses and there's always responses that we can draw out so it might be that 
even though you you froze in in that moment when the car, you know, when you're in the car and you had a car car accident, that that freezing was your body trying to keep safe, um, and the that was a way that even though it doesn't feel like a response, it was a response. It was trying to stop yourself from doing any more harm. So it's really t- trying to work out, I guess, mine those kind of stories of, of how we survived, how we responded, what we did to learn from it, or, or I mean not, not learn from it, but what we did or how we can learn from it, how we can, what we can take from it, there's a whole area of called post-traumatic growth. Um, okay. And that's in the kind of positive psychology, uh, I guess, field. And it really talks about the idea that, that trauma can be an opportunity for understanding uh, growth. That that and And often I think when you hear people, like when people often share their trauma stories and they, uh, you know, if it like big, I guess what am I thinking of like celebrities that or people that have gone through significant adversity? Often that's one of the one of the themes that you hear. That you know, if I think of like um, Michael J. Fox, for example, he talks about he's written a, quite a few books about his diagnosis with Parkinson's, and he talks about how even though Parkinson's has been awful, and I can imagine that he wouldn't he wouldn't want it on anyone. He still looks at it and goes, "It actually made my life better in some ways because it it connected me to the people around me more. It it made me appreciate my relationships more, and the trajectory I was on before that, which was probably more fame and you know that kind of thing, wasn't really heading that way. And and now look at the impact his life has had. You know, he's set up these foundations. He's set up." Um, you know, on Parkinson's, he's raised awareness. He's had such a meaningful impact. So, and I think it's not trying to. I think it's important, though, in these conversations, not trying to put a silver lining on trauma, because it's not something that it's not like trying to Pollyanna it and make the most out of it. I think it's it's trying to make a story that makes sense for you, that's useful to you, um, that that helps you understand that you have survived. That regardless of what's happened, you are still here. Like. Yes, you felt a strong sense of, of uh, not being safe and, and often moral violations and things like that, but you have survived and you are here, so let's let's look at what, what's helped you survive. Yeah, for sure. And are there any other like potential challenges or barriers of practising self-care that people should be aware of and know not to be too hard on themselves about? Yeah, I think one of the hard things is sometimes recognizing when you do need the help. Um, yeah. So sometimes we can struggle on our struggle on our own for too long. But I think sometimes it's better to reach out early and and get get the support at, in the early stage as opposed to kind of falling in a heap and then getting it later. Not that yeah, not that I'm judging either one. It's just that sometimes it's harder to kind of rewind and and come back um in that way that um it's much easier to get it early so sometimes just knowing when you need help um when it's when you need to kind of have someone guiding you through this process because all the things that i'm talking about 
there something really you do need a therapist for to, to really help guide you and guide you along that path um and it may not be a therapist it might be a it might be a priest it might be a um, a really good friend um because i think there's it's not saying that it has to be a therapist but sometimes you, you got to recognize that resilience happens in context that the everything about your community everything about that all impacts how well you recover yeah, for sure. And are there like some sort of self-care practices that can be triggering for trauma survivors or anything that people should avoid? Yeah, I think anything can be triggering, unfortunately. Um, yeah. And so it is about being potentially planning for those those moments or where you can and you might not know what's triggering and that's the hard part. Yeah. Um, but but maybe if you if you are trying something new then have a bit of a plan for if you're and if it's something that's maybe a little bit you know new and a little bit more you, you're a bit nervous about for example you might be going for your first massage because that's a, you know that's a self-care practice but then you go to do the massage and it triggers a whole bunch of things that touch triggers a whole bunch of things yeah so I think in those instances, trying to listen to your gut instinct and kind of understanding, okay, if I'm trying something new like a massage or yoga class or um, I'm going to a new course on, you know, trauma trauma awareness training or something like that, then it's important to be kind of going, you know, having a couple of plans in place like, okay, I'm going to meet my friends straight afterwards or I'm going to tell the instructor that, I may not do the whole class and if I leave, please don't follow me, I'll be okay or or do follow me if you want them to, you know. So I guess having, yeah. having a bit of, you know, preempting because as I said, it's hard. Like there are going to be things that, that are going to be harder for people in terms of that triggering uh, and it really depends on the trauma that you've experienced and it depends on a whole bunch of, of factors in that way and it's sometimes hard to had to, you know, for example, a song might come on the radio that you haven't heard for 60 years, or not 60 years, sorry. <laughs> it might be 60 years, but it might be, you know, you haven't heard it for a long time and then suddenly that brings back all these memories. Um, yeah. And it's just, it's in the yoga, it's not in the, it's in the gym that you go into for your self-care practice, you know, and it suddenly you have to go. And so I guess it's having mani- having managing management plans in place of what you're going to do when that those kind of situations arise. Yeah, and you mentioned trauma awareness training before. So on the lines of that, are there any other like tools that people can use to help them get through this? Uh, in terms of trauma awareness training or? Um, in terms of like, you know, self-care or are there any sort of like resources they can use? Um, so there is some really good organisations who do trauma awareness training. Um, so there's Blue Knot. In Australia, and so I'm, I'm really kind of a little bit more focused on Australia, but yeah, um, and I understand that there might be an international audience, but Bloom, but the good thing about them is that they're on the web. So if you're in Canada, or if you're wherever you are, you could still access it, and they've got fact sheets and that kind of thing. So Blue Knot is really good. It's got some really good information about all the things I've been talking about about memory and and that kind of thing. As I said, but Van Vanderkolt, um, his book. Um, the body keeps the score is kind of a little bit one of the like the bibles in this area of trauma trauma awareness um, 
and understanding the impact of trauma and understanding the body's reaction to trauma. Dan Siegel also has some really great books on this um, and really easy to read books as well. Um, He's a really great communicator. Phoenix Institute is another one in Australia who focus on probably more PTSD, so um, uh, I guess more kind of clinical end, but has some really great resources as well. Yeah, awesome. And in terms of like navigating all of these resources, because I feel like sometimes it can be overwhelming because there's so much out there, like you can get advice from people, you can go online and just be flooded with all these websites. How can someone navigate all of this? And is there like a first point of call? Uh, look, not that I'm really aware of in terms of like trauma, like phone lines and that kind of stuff or um, first port of call. But I suppose I suppose what I'd say is uh, depending on how significant it's impacting your life, it's really important to be able to get therapeutic support. And in Australia that usually starts with going to your GP and talking to them about some of the symptoms that you're experiencing and getting a mental health care plan so that you can then be referred on to a psychologist or a social worker um, and get some counselling through that. There's often um, also in Australia, uh, and I guess I'm just talking in the local context, there's often what they call like sexual assault centres or um, particular uh, centres that look at different traumas. So it's not kind of, it's often, that's not, not always in the one area. So for example, if, you know, in a, I'm thinking of Victoria, where I am in Australia, there's a place called Foundation House and they are the experts in trauma for more refugee experiences and asylum seekers. So it really kind of depends on your experience, but I suppose yeah. having, having someone that you can talk to uh, going back to before, it doesn't have to be a therapist. A therapist can be a good checking base, um, but it might be just having someone like a, a good friend that you can meet with regularly and, and have a chat to about how you're going to navigate it all. Um, but because it, it is, it is there is a lot of information, and you don't have to you don't have to read it all. It's just finding yeah. what's useful. Yeah, beautiful. Um, I think we can jump into our next section now, which is our practices debrief. So here I'm just going to ask you about some everyday kind of applications that you have or anything you can share with us. So is there like a practice that you could recommend to help cultivate, you know, self-awareness of trauma? I think mindfulness practices uh, yeah, I really a really great start, um, and I think having that 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 just simple simple mindfulness as well. So sometimes I think mindfulness can also kind of become one of those self care chores rather than self care love <laughs> kind of things that people kind of think I should be doing ten. Like so, trying not to have too many goals around it, but just trying to do it as much as you can maybe having building in a bit of a routine, you know, having maybe five minutes in the morning where you just close your eyes and, you know, focus on your breathing as best you can. Um, just uh, being patient with yourself. Remember being being non-judgmental and to just allow yourself to, to breathe in that time and 
having a bit of an anchor for across the day because that's kind of what I talk a lot about with with mindfulness that the breath is an anchor that you can always come back to and you've got some control over it so you can kind of slow it down when you need to slow it down and and gives you a good ground it's a good grounding technique um and I guess that's the thing it may not work for you sitting there and focusing on your breath all day but maybe it's a minute where you just take three breaths and just ha- have make them conscious breaths so finding that practice that's going to work for you um you know sometimes people's kind of mindfulness is like going for a run um where they're kind yeah. of just in the present moment and they're just you know focused on the run itself so that's still a mindfulness practice so it's really being flexible about what we consider mindfulness to be and but trying to find those times where you are present in the moment and because it's a bit of a brain training exercise it's the more we can kind of practice that the more we can use that when we are in times of stress where our mind has traveled somewhere that we we don't want it to go the more practiced that we are at being able to bring our attention back to what we do want to attend to, which may be the present moment, the yeah. easier it will be. Sure. And is this something that you practice in your life as well? Yeah. Look, I think I um, like I think that's why I always say like have a very flexible approach because I'm really busy. It's hard to carve out even five minutes sometimes to sit there and and do a mindfulness practice so sometimes I I will just you know have those moments where I'll just stop and attend to my breathing for a couple of couple of minutes you know I won't necessarily always sit and do a a mindfulness practice but one of the things I guess I'm lucky in is that I do mindfulness with my clients (laughs) so I often lead a mindfulness and that can help me uh, I guess tune into mindful, mindful awareness, and and I often before sessions I tend to try and have, as I said, maybe two minutes, maybe three minutes. I close my eyes just before I greet a person, um, and that's just a way of me, almost as well as like an honor to that person. Like I want to, I want to be present for them. I don't want my, you know, busy life to kind of impact that 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 relationship I want to be with them and particularly because I work with kids and adolescents I want them to know I'm 100% there yeah I feel like that's such a beautiful approach as well and mindfulness is something that I've been trying to practice in my life too but like you said it's something that really takes a lot of practice to do Um, and going back to what we were talking about about not like being too hard on yourself when you do try these self-care things sometimes I feel like if you want to get better at something, it's just about like persevering and pushing through it. A hundred percent. Like it's just about kind of like, I think uh, the research by Kristen Neff um, looked at like our motivation um, and she's the, you know, the self-compassion researcher and she did like some really kind of cool studies on motivation and how when we kind of, often we have this perception that we motivate ourselves by kind of, the stick you know we say like if you don't do this you're going to get trouble you know if you don't do that you're gonna you know if you don't do mindfulness then you're gonna have mental health problems or that kind of thing and that really isn't motivating (laughs) it's not as motivating as being kind to ourselves which sometimes feels like 
oh, you're just being too soft on yourself. But if you're kind of saying to yourself, forgiving yourself and saying, you know, I didn't do mindfulness today, um, you know, I'll, I'll try it tomorrow. Yeah. You, you have a much more better relationship with mindfulness almost. You're like, okay, me and mindfulness can get along. We'll try again tomorrow, you know, <laughs> whereas if you yeah. kind of like, you know, kind of beating yourself up every time you don't do it, then you start thinking, oh, maybe I don't want to do mindfulness then because it's becomes it becomes like something that you beat yourself up about yeah and I feel like with these types of practices it's so important to just be forgiving with yourself as well so I'm so glad you mentioned that because I feel like it's so easy to just like keep berating ourselves for being so bad at something um when really we're just doing the best we can do 100 percent. yeah I think if forgiveness is all part of it that again like you wouldn't you wouldn't like berate a friend who didn't have a you know a coffee every like if if their self-care plan was to have a, a coffee and a mindfulness session every day and they didn't yeah. do it you wouldn't say oh not good enough you're a failure yeah. you'd say oh you know you didn't do it one day that's okay you put it in perspective um you can try again you'd, you'd give all those encouragements so I think it's like remembering to apply the same thinking to ourselves so we can just get straight into our open mic section now. So um, the floor is yours if you'd like to talk about anything at all. It could be to do with this topic or could be totally random. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Um, I think I'd like to emphasize that a trauma and experiences of trauma are often abnormal, as in the things that are not going to happen on your day-to-day life but we often have what's a, no- a normal response to it so when we are feeling uh you know these symptoms that i've been talking about the fight or flight symptoms or flashbacks or those kind of things that's a pretty normal response to an abnormal event and that's something that i've kind of talked a lot about with with clients that these are abnormal this is an abnormal thing that's happened but what your response is is normal that that you're not broken because of this that Instead of focusing on what's wrong with you, we focus on what's happened to you and what we can now do about it. And I think that also ties into probably another area that I'm really interested in and I do a little bit of research in at the moment, which is the idea of shame and how shame relates to trauma and how we can fall into spirals of shame very easily because shame is really this um, very strong, I guess, emotion or strong negative emotion that really is this judgment of of ourselves in relation to other people. So we kind of see see us as as some sort of, some sort of not good enough or not right, or and we see other people thinking uh, about us in this way. And it may not even be other people. Maybe we think other, other you know another a god thinks of us in this way. It's just uh, I guess a sense of the other thinking that there's something wrong with us and shame is a really, as I said, it can be a really strong emotion and it, and it kind of can really taint everything else. And I think it's really important to be aware of, of shame as an emotion because that's where when we think about trauma responses in different ways and when we're going back to that, those ACE studies of the adverse childhood events, some people look to kind of, they feel a sense of shame and they look to kind of fix that shame by drinking a lot or by taking drugs and alcohol. So they try and get rid of that shame um, or they, they, they try they get rid of the shame by being aggressive. So um, 
by feeling getting the respect that they want by by being aggressive to another person. So we often attract, we often as human beings hate shame. No one likes to feel that there's something wrong with us. Yeah. But in response to that, we can sometimes have these really unhelpful uh, behaviors and and ways of coping with it. And so recognizing that shame is an emotion for one and recognizing that, and that's where I guess it ties back into mindfulness is that all emotions uh, are temporary, that we're not going to be stuck in it forever, that we, that it is an experience, like we might feel that in that moment, but it doesn't define, doesn't have to define us. Um, and not trying to also completely squash it down, get rid of it. Um, because if we, we do that, then that's when we kind of try and ignore it, try and, and, and that kind of thing, rather than just kind of allow it to pass. Um, and, and I'm not saying step into it and believe it. I'm saying allow it to pass. I think they're, they're two different things. So step into stepping into shame is kind of saying, yes, that story is correct. I am, I'm a failure on this. I'm, I'm not good enough. But stepping, understanding shame as a passing emotion is saying, oh, I'm getting the story that I'm not good enough. Taking a step back and watching it, watching that, and going, okay, I'm, I'm kind of stepping into shame here, and an understanding that you can step out of it. You don't have to be taken down into this shame spiral because once you're in that spiral, that's when you kind of, yeah, it can be, it can be really hard to get yourself out of, and that's when I think a lot more you kind of fall into a lot of mental health issues around that yeah for sure and just on like the topic of shame and I guess where it stems from would you say that like cultural background and cultural factors contribute towards this I think there's quite a bit of research around uh, I guess how different cultures experience shame differently as well that um you know so they're kind of losing faith faith culture of you know uh, how if someone's reputation gets damaged in some way how that how cultures sometimes value that more or less um and and i also think shame obviously affects culture but it also affects environment so that's where i'm kind of interested in with schools and, and places like that where shame can kind of become normal like we we accidentally shame kids sometimes by how we the practices that we do by by saying certain things like or by you know putting their name on a board or something like that that's that's a really shaming kind of thing that you know when they're naughty and you say and you put their name on the board and you say you know that's you jimmy you're i'm 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 pointing out to the whole class that there's something wrong with you um that's that can be quite shaming and then I guess that ties back into being trauma aware and and um, and also shame sensitive, which is kind of an, a newer area, shame sensitivity, um, but it's a developing area in the in the research field at the moment. Yeah, for sure. And I guess sort of developing awareness that you are like traumatized is hard. So how can someone, I guess, go about? developing greater awareness for that mm-hmm. uh so i guess in terms of finding like finding more information about trauma or drama about whether they have been affected by trauma 
Yeah. So whether that be like resources or even like being comfortable with reaching out to loved ones or someone to talk to. Thank you. I think it's a process. Um, help seeking is different for different people and it's another area that's always been of interest to me exploring that. But there's, I think, gender and culture also kind of play a part in that sometimes that um that sometimes when I've talked to the, talked to men about help seeking and they've said to me, I wouldn't call up a, a friend and say I need help, but I might call up yeah. a friend and say I, I want to go for a bike ride or I want to do something and then it might come out in that way or they might not even talk specifically to their friend about it. They just need a friend at that time. And I think it's okay to have different ways of reaching out for help um and and often you know those I think it's just being open to maybe talking about it with someone at some point but even even in saying that some people don't don't respond in in that way to help to talking through through a trauma some like that's what they've kind of the research has found quite um quite a lot that Back, you know, in maybe the 90s, we all thought that people needed to debrief trauma and actually it was actually having a worse effect. Everyone was sitting debriefing and it wasn't actually working. So it's finding what works for you again as opposed to saying that this is how you should do it. Um, but I think building self-awareness, the, the main practical things that you can do are, one, talking to people, two, reading or writing about it um, is really important because it's all about kind of getting a bit of make it, making it make sense for you. Um, so I think either one of those things um, are, are really good to find your, it comes back down to that same theme of getting a cohesive story of making, making it make sense for you. Because when it, when things don't make sense, humans don't like that. <laughs> we don't like yeah. things that don't make sense and it, and it continues to play on our mind a lot. So it's finding what makes sense for you and whether if that is going to a yoga class once a week or going to a boxing class once a week and never never really talking that much about it then that's okay um it it's it's gonna it has to work with what what works for you yeah beautiful and i think that's also the perfect way to leave today's episode so thank you so much for joining us today georgie Oh, thank you for having me on. It's been a real pleasure to just kind of talk about an area of passion like this and have an opportunity to really, you know, tease out some of the, the things around trauma and self-care. Um, so I really appreciate it. So thanks, Joanna. No, it's my pleasure. I 100% agree, though. I feel like it's such a nuanced topic. And we also don't just have these types of conversations in like everyday life. So I think it's so important to bring about more awareness that there are people who are going through, you know, trauma and, you know, self-care is important in that process. So I'm glad we were able to talk about that today. Good. (laughs) Thank you. Perfect. Um, And for those of us who want to find out more about you, where can we go? So I've got um, a small private practice called Story Kind Psychology. Um, so you can go and have a look on there. Uh, I just run a really small private practice that I kind of work across research and supervision and um, private practice. But that, that website probably gives you a little bit more information about me and who I am, um, my LinkedIn profile. Yeah, that's probably it. 
and awesome well we also have georgie's details in the description below but to everyone listening don't forget to like and subscribe and we'll see you guys next time thanks you have been listening to bouncing back the personal resilience science insights podcast produced by the life management science labs Listen to episodes from LMSL's 10 Life Management Perspectives on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or other podcasting apps on your smartphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel as it helps other people find it and us grow to bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website, pr.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Joanna, thanks for tuning in.